Boy, that went by fast. Let's reflect. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're going to be taking a look back at the summer movie season of 2017. So pull up a chair. Let's get things started. Now, I know what you must be thinking, well, it's early August, Rob, why are we already talking about the summer like it doesn't have a whole month left to go? Well, it seems to me that over the last couple of decades that the summer movie season has gradually moved from June, August to really May and then barely August, like the first week or so of August, um, with few how I mean, there's few high profile releases left in, in this month, let's be honest. So I'm pretty confident that it's as good a time as ever to make some definitive calls regarding summer 2017. After all, the kids are back in school and everything, at least in my neck of the woods, and the weeks of constant tent poles are definitely on hiatus, probably for the next month or two. If you do want to know what's hitting in August, though, check the show notes on crookedtable.com for a link to um, a list of movies we're looking forward to over on Screen Rant that I wrote. So just going into, to have a little more structure to this, we're going to be coming up with some arbitrary awards to give out to summarize this season in film, focusing mostly on the positive for two reasons. One, I'm not really looking to bitch and moan and add more negativity into the world unnecessarily. Turn on the news is enough divisiveness and insanity happening already. And two, because I wisely skipped most of the summer's biggest stinkers. I have not seen Transformers the last night. I don't plan to ever see it. I have not seen the Emoji movie. So I can really only comment on the movies that I have actually seen myself. Granted, there's still a few I have to catch up on, uh, like Girls Trip, A Ghost Story, Detroit, some of which haven't really hit my my uh, area yet. So, uh, you know, maybe in the weeks or months ahead, I'll have an opportunity to talk about some of those. Uh, but as for now, these are the awards that we're looking at. First up, we have the Welcome Back Award, is what we're calling this one. And this goes to a film that actually brought an ailing franchise back to life in a satisfying way, leaving audiences clamoring for more, sort of despite themselves. So this summer, I think the big success story, as far as this uh, topic is concerned, is definitely Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, Freddie and I did a whole episode talking about that, which, again, by the way, you can find links to all the uh, the episodes on which I discuss most of the movies on the, that I'm about to talk about in the awards section of this episode uh, in the show notes or in the description below. Um, but Spider-Man Homecoming was a very much a redemption story for the character after those two misguided, amazing Spider-Man films, and uh, not to mention Spider-Man 3. It's really the best Spider-Man movie we've had in 13 years since Spider-Man 2. And... Uh, you know, the movie I had issues with, I talked about with Freddy about how I felt like the MCU presence was a little bit overbearing, but considering that a lot of us kind of thought that Spider-Man would never really join the Avengers or uh, share the same space as, as uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, to begin with, the fact that they were able to pull it off and pull it off so successfully, kind of t- taking it back to high school and taking a more John Usian approach to the whole thing, I think was a smart move. Is it my is it my uh, you know my favorite movie this summer? No. Is it my favorite MCU movie this year? No. Is it my favorite Spider Man movie? Not by a long shot. But the the film did what it needed to do, which is make people excited about Spider Man again, and that's really what this award is all about. So moving into another next award for slickest summer ride. Now this is honors a film that celebrates style over substance, but 
not in a, not with the negative connotation that's usually um, that's usually applied to that. We're talking about in a good way. And of course, for me, the no film does that apply to more than Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Um, just the, the from a plot perspective, that film is very simplistic it's very sort of archetypal it's like oh one more job and then i'm gonna go straight and uh, and of course he's got a love, a love story involved and blah 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 all kinds of shady characters all of which are in various degrees sort of cliches and the movie kind of leans into that i think um and subverts those expectations to some degree but the precision with which wright is able to pull off the uh the, I guess, for lack of a better term, choreography of the way the music is edited together with um, with the action and the way that the, the soundtrack plays such an integral role in the machinations of the plot and in the story itself and how it, it is basically an integral part of that character. That really blew me away. I've, I've been listening to the soundtrack quite a bit <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, it never gets old. And I think that film has such a sense of, of cool to it, despite the fact that Ansel Elgort's character maybe isn't the coolest. Um, the, the control that Wright has behind the camera and his vision is so on display that I think it, it really makes that film rise above the fact that its storyline, stripped of all its dress, you know, dressing, and by dressing, I mean the uh, you know the other post product the other produ production elements that kind of overshadow it um, I think it really helps elevate it to a level that on paper you wouldn't think that film would really work um, for this category also wanted to make sure I mentioned an honorable mention for Atomic Blonde you can hear my review with the Cinemaholics podcast um, in the description the show notes I'll put a link to that so moving into our next award Biggest missed opportunity. Now this one, I said I was going to say mostly positive. This probably is the most negative leaning of uh, one of the most negative leaning categories that we're going to discuss. So this goes to the film that had promise but really failed to deliver on it. Ultimately, really underwhelming like a motherfucker. So uh, for me, like I said at the top, I ended up skipping a lot of the quote, worst films of the summer. Um, unless it's something I had already sort of invested interest in, seeing terrible reviews for movies like Transformers or the Emoji Movie uh, really just only vindicated the fact that I was like, oh, good, I didn't want to see that anyway. So, so I'm not going to submit myself or, or subject myself, rather, sorry, subject myself to terrible films unless I have a reason, unless I'm reviewing it or something like that. I'm not going to go out of my way to see it. So, for me, the weakest major release I saw this summer, by a mile, maybe even two, was The Mummy. I'm a big fan of Tom Cruise. I've probably talked about that on here before. I really like... Jerry Maguire is one of my favorite movies. I really like him in genre stuff, like Edge of Tomorrow. The Mission Impossible films are amazing and seem like they're getting better and better. But that Mummy movie was a fucking mess. I don't know what Universal's plans are for the Dark Universe going forward, I know that uh, my interest in it has has uh, precipitously fallen, and I know that the director of The Mummy, Alex Kurtzman, is trying to determine whether or not he wants to stay with the franchise at this point. And they have this Oscar-winning cast, Javier Bardem, and all this, you know, Russell Crowe, and Johnny Depp, and all these people. Um, well, Johnny Depp's not an Oscar winner, but still, I digress. 
lined up for this upcoming slate of films that they have in development, and I don't know if anybody really cares. This film just had such a mishmash of tones. It went from sort of campy to like really serious to scary to action to, to feeling like another Mission Impossible film at times. And I didn't really think any of it worked. I thought the characters were bland and uh, nondescript. I really feel like the only major thing that worked in it was Sofia Boutella as the, mon the mummy herself. Uh, I think that she brought a lot to the role physically. I mean, she is a trained dancer. And I think you could see that in the way that she moves in that film and the way that she really sells that character. But she's working on, she's operating at another level. The film around her just isn't, just isn't hitting. Um, also, I'm mentioning The Mummy for this category because I haven't really seen The Dark Tower yet, which is coming out as, as of this weekend, coming up, uh, as of this recording is coming out this weekend. And um, from what I've heard is going to be a disaster on multiple levels. So that easily could have taken this one. <clears throat> also, Snatched, which I talked about on a previous episode of the podcast, with uh, that, of course, is the Amy Schumer Goldie Hawn action comedy? I guess more comedy than action. That felt like a huge missed opportunity for me because I'm a big fan of Goldie Hawn's earlier work, and she hadn't been in a movie in 15 years or so. And and I didn't think Snatched really delivered. It was very uneven and uh, pretty lackluster. So that to me felt like a uh, kind of a sad disappointment. Moving into the From Page to Screen Award. Now this goes to the best film this summer based on a comic book. And we've had quite a few of them. We've already had, uh, you know, I've already mentioned Spider-Man Homecoming. As far as me for the year, Logan is definitely my favorite comic book film of 2017 so far. Granted, we still have Thor Ragnarok, Justice League, stuff like that to get to. But for summer 2017, it's definitely Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Which also has the best soundtrack, unsurprisingly. But I, I remember seeing the first one, and Freddie and I talked about it on the podcast years ago, and I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't like I wasn't blown away. It wasn't my favorite, one of my favorite movies of that summer or that year. Um, I have the Blu-ray mostly because I'm a completist. It's 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 a good film, but it's not to me. It's not great. So people coming out of it, praising it as the second coming of you know blockbuster cinema. I wasn't really on board with that. I thought it was actually mildly overrated. So to my surprise, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was much more at my speed. In a way, I should have expected that because I have a history, especially with comic book movies, of loving the sequels much more than the original. I've said this on, my, on the Guardians Volume 2 um, episode of the podcast, that the first one introduces the world, the character sets the stage, talking about X-Men, Spider-Man, um, then the sequel really progresses the plot and, and deepens it and raises the emotional stakes, raises the scope of the storyline, that kind of thing. And f for me, Volume 2 was that movie. It's, it's really weird, the fact that in the first one, yeah, there were moments that, I, that, I was, that were emotional and I was emotionally engaged. You know, the opening with, with Star-Lord's mom, um, the, the Groot's spoilers, I guess, for Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> Groot's sacrifice at the end of the first film, um, the way it all ties in together and the flashback with his mom and stuff, the vision that he has, all of that I thought was, was really, was really, uh, poignant, but in volume two, the littlest, the littlest bullshit 
hits me emotionally. And I, I don't know if it's just because I know who these characters are now. And it, there wasn't as, for me, there wasn't as much of expectations going into it because the first one had already, before I saw the first one, I'd already been hearing, it's amazing. And I kind of saw the second one faltering all that, all that out because I'd been desensitized to it the first time. But little things in this, I was more into Gamora and Star-Lord's, uh, like, quasi-romance. I was more into Gamora and Nebula, Nebula's sort of damaged sister relationship. I was more into Yondu's story and Rocket and, like, everything. Like, I was completely engaged across the board. I thought it was more imaginative. I thought it had more um, originality and, and brought more of that James Gunn quirkiness with Ego the Living Planet and... Um, other elements from the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe. So I was a huge fan of it. I actually saw it a second time with Kai. It's probably part of the reason I, I think I like it more, too, is that I had a second time to really reflect on it. So um, it most likely will be in my top ten movies of the year. Um, and, you know, I, I, it really took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. Conveniently enough, next award goes to Best Surprise. Now, this is the film that came out of nowhere to sweep the world and, and delivering. It was a memorable film that qualifies it for consideration as an instant classic and one of the year's best. A lot of times, you know, nowadays with franchises and, and uh, long, ongoing development deals, it's hard for a movie to come out to really knock you off your socks and leave you wondering well, where the hell did that come from? What what the hell's going on? I wasn't expecting that in the slightest. And I think this year, one of the big success stories in that regard is certainly The Big Sick. This is the comedy drama produced by Judd Apatow, um, directed by Michael Showalter, and written by the star Kumail Nanjani and um, his wife, Emily V. Gordon. And uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast, this was a, a really, I mean, I, and this is like Guardians that I was just talking about. This is one of those movies that I'd heard a lot of about going in, and I, I heard how emotional it was and how how funny it was and how like fresh it felt. And yet when I saw it, I still didn't walk out disappointed. Um, was it? I feel like I feel like people may have been overselling the the amount of laughs just a bit because I was much more emotionally engaged um, than I was laughing if that makes any sense. But I think that that's a big thing for me. I'd rather a comedy be lighter in tone, but um, more emotional and, and deeper with the characters than just be a, you know, ridiculous laugh riot where nothing has any, you know, you don't really care about anybody and there's no real consequences. So that's part of the reason I think I'm very picky when it comes to comedies. I feel like there's usually one or two comedies that I walk away from in a year being like, that was really good. That's what I recommend. For the most part, I'm like, eh, it was fine. It was a movie. You know, some parts were funny, and you're like, oh, that's weird, whatever, and you shrug it off and go get dinner. But The Big Sick uh, is a film that has stuck with me. It's a film that I Kai hasn't seen, so I'm looking forward to picking it up on Blu-ray and watching it with her and gauging her reaction. And the fact that it's based on a true story adds a whole adds a whole other level of, um, I don't know, meaning to it. And um, it, it just. It really, it really blew people away, and I think rightfully so. And I would, like I said on the episode of the podcast where I discussed it, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Nanjani or the film or the screenplay or Showalter or some, but some this it's going to get some awards attention, um, probably more in the on the uh, Golden Globe, Independent Spirit, that kind of. Well, I don't know if it's really, it's not really independent. I don't think. Um, 
but probably more on that side than Oscars, but I could definitely see this slipping in for a supporting role for Ray Romano or Holly Hunter or a screenplay nomination or something because the film is that good. It has certain things about it that don't 100% work, but for the most part, it's it's a really satisfying film. And, you know, if you're looking for a romance, if you're looking for a comedy, if you're looking for a drama, I feel like it hits all those in a pretty well-balanced way. Moving into the Too Little Too Late Award, this goes to a film that marks a marginal improvement for a franchise, but might not have really done enough to truly redeem it. I should mention, honorable mention for this one, for Alien Covenant. Uh, again, you can hear what I, you can hear me uh, talk about this one with the guys over at Cinemaholics. Link in the in the show notes and description below. That one was a little bit better for me than Prometheus, a little more focused, but overall still lacking and still kind of a mess and uh, fraught with the same problems as Prometheus. So for me, this one definitely goes to Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Men Tell No Tales. I feel like I'm actually one of the few people that didn't 100% hate this film because I really, really, really couldn't stand Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. And I've actually recently gone back and watched the first three, which I think work as a trilogy. And uh, despite, you know, getting a little bit weaker with each installment, I think ends on a sort of interesting, interestingly bittersweet note, which is not something you would expect for a series of films based on a theme park ride. And Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales felt like the fourth movie. It, it really felt like Disney as a whole was like, yeah, okay, we fucked up with On Stranger Tides. We're going to move past that shit and, and you know, pretend it didn't happen. Because there's almost no reference to that in this movie. It basically is a, is a proper sequel to At World's End. And um, in many ways feels sort of like a reboot, like a soft reboot of the franchise. We bring in two new leads, we bring in uh, another cursed uh, pirate crew who, who's after Jack Sparrow to get revenge and all that stuff. There are a lot of elements of the original, I guess, original Pirates trilogy that are sort of repurposed and repackaged and represented to audiences in the hopes of having them, making them real, th- making them, creating the illusion that it's something new, when in, in actuality it's just kind of a remix of the original trilogy. And to me, the big comparison that I came with uh, walking out of the theater for Pirates 5 was The Force Awakens, in that it, it also took elements from that original trilogy, it also sort of did like its own spin on them, propelling the franchise forward, but also closing a book on certain original characters and uh, readdressing plot threads that were left lingering by the previous trilogy. So I think Pirates 5 is not the best movie. I think it's far better than its predecessor. And it and I can't believe I'm saying this. I said this on the podcast. I can't believe I'm, I can't believe I'm repeating it, I guess. Almost makes me want a Pirate 6 because it leads to something that might might help this franchise get back on top because that first one is amazing. We're probably never going to get back to that. But two and three for me still really work. So if there's any chance that they could sort of reclaim this franchise, uh, part of me is interested to see that. If they don't, if this is the end, I'm fine with that. But um, yeah, which it's interesting to see what happening with what happens with this because for me, I'm I'm interested, but I don't think the box office grosses 
um, really, the box office gross really justifies maybe doing another one. I, I think it did. It underperformed, so it'll be interesting to see if Disney will give it another shot because I do feel like for this one, the audiences really are saying, yeah, it's too little, too late. So the, that's a wrap award. We're going to talk about this film goes, this award goes to the film that managed to bring an ongoing story to a satisfying conclusion. Wasn't a lot of big uh, trilogy cappers or franchise enders. Uh, well, I mean, there were franchise enders, but not intentionally so. <laughs> this summer, I think. But this one definitely goes to War for the Planet of the Apes. This is the third in the rebooted Planet of the Apes series. This one is the second from director Matt Reeves. And again, has Andy Serkis as the uh, ape revolutionary Caesar. I really loved Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I thought that was... Basically a perfect summer blockbuster movie, um, thought-provoking sci-fi. It had a lot of, of uh, resonant themes and and the pretty pretty well balanced between the moral representation on the ape and human side. War for the Planet of the Apes doesn't have that same balance because at this point if we start on the humans' perspective. The second movie sort of teeters between the two, the you know the human side of the storyline and the ape side of the storyline, ultimately really obviously focusing on the ape side of the storyline. And in this third one, we're pretty much all on the ape side, and we're basically like, fuck humanity! They've had their chance! Don't, don't destroy the apes! Let them... They, they deserve this planet. Um, which is interesting, because this franchise is essentially... We're, as with most sci-fi, we're basically the architects of our own, of our own downfall. And um, I think that really furthers our sympathy and our support for Caesar in his quest to free the apes and to, you know, create a, a, you know, open society of a planet of apes. And for me, this film didn't quite hit the same level as Dawn. I think that it has, it's a little bit slow in places, it's a little bit unfocused in places, and Freddie and I had a whole discussion about how that conclusion uh, probably could have been handled a little, little neater, a little less uh, clunky. And that being said, Circus's performance here is so strong. The visuals are, are as good as they've ever been. It does bring this franchise. If they want to end it here, this is the perfect uh, chapter of the per perfect chapter to close that story out on and just have this be a standalone Planet of the Apes prequel trilogy. Whether that happens because this is doing well in the box office, Probably not. It's probably not going to be the case because, you know, money talks. So I'm sure we'll get another another Apes movie in, announcement very soon and hitting theaters in 2020 or something. But this film hit all the emotional notes I wanted it to. It had really strong, like I said, a really strong performance by Circus. And it, it was sufficiently epic in scope, despite my my quibbles with uh, with the way it all turns out. Now, her final award, the film of the summer. Now, this is relating mostly to a movie that conquered the box office and critics, basically emerging as the biggest overall triumph. And for, for my money, if anybody's been paying attention, this should not be a surprise. It's definitely Wonder Woman. And this is not my, fa my favorite film of the summer. It's not my favorite film of the year. It's not even my favorite, as, as I said earlier, with Guardians, with... Well, with, well, Spider-Man, um, 
it's not my favorite my favorite comic book movie of the summer but if you're talking about um, cultural impact if you're talking about blowing away box office records if you're talking about impressing critics and audiences alike and having everyone walk out of that and be like yes more of that please give me here's all my money um, and the fact that we already have a Wonder Woman 2 sequel announced and has a release date and everything I think is a testament to that Wonder Woman is by far the success story of the summer. You can we can go into have a whole conversation about like you know politically why a uh, a film with a female superhero at the center of it why that's apparently what audiences were looking for, and we can talk about the third act and how it sort of almost not falls apart but it kind of unravels a little bit and, and slips into. I guess, superhero movie cliche, but what's the point? Because Wonder Woman overall is a great film, overall did make a big impact on uh, the industry, and I think we're going to see that now. I feel feeling like, I have a feeling that DC and Marvel and other studios will really be pushing, even more so, uh, female-led films, female-led tent poles um, on the same scale. The fact that it took 70-something years to, for Wonder Woman to get her own movie is appalling and ridiculous. But the fact that it finally, that it, when it finally did come along and it made such an impact, I think really has a lot to say about all the mis misconceptions in the movie industry and the fact that maybe audiences are open to more things than studio executives think they are. Maybe, you know, it's not a tremendous shock to see, oh my god, there's a, there's a woman fighting people. What? That's craziness. It's not that big of it's not that big of a deal. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. But the fact that we haven't had this kind of representation on screen makes it a big deal. It makes it makes us feel like like a step forward for the art form of cinema. Yes, have there been female-led films, you know, of this of this uh, budget that have performed well? Yeah, you know, we had the uh, the Hunger Games franchise, Force Awakens even, things like that that are female-centered action heroes. I mean, you go back to Ripley, Sarah Connor, and things like that. So it's not like this is the first time this has ever happened, or even the first time there's been a woman in a comic book role sort of at the center. We had mostly terrible ones. Um, but this is the first time that all those elements have really clicked, and, and it feels like it's, it's, it feels like the message has finally been heard within the industry that we want to see more women at the center of these major blockbusters. Why does, why does it always have to be Batman, Superman, Iron Man? Why can't we get more of these female characters, give them their chance to shine? And I think we're already starting to see that with Captain Marvel coming. I mean, granted, these were already in development before Wonder Woman, but still, I think they're only going to continue that trend. Captain Marvel and Gotham City Sirens, and um, I'm, I'm blanking on some other ones that we're probably going to get. And to me, Wonder Woman is by far the big takeaway from this summer. I mean, it's the biggest moneymaker. It actually has now made more than Deadpool, which last year everybody was saying, it's a turning point for cinema. And it brings something totally, re, you know, makes us rethink the comic book genre. So Wonder Woman is doing that this year. Um, and overall, it's been a tremendous year for comic book films with Logan also being sort of a, a groundbreaker and, and uh, in its own right, 
Guardians, I already said how much I love that. Spider-Man's now back on top. Even fucking Lego Batman movie was a lot of a lot of fun. And, you know, there's positive buzz coming in for Thor Ragnarok. So the fact that Wonder Woman has uh, has performed so well is really impressive and, and really well-deserved. So kudos to Gal Gadot, to Warner Brothers, to DC, to director Patty Jenkins, because they, they created something here that has um, really helped helped propel um, the you know the, the feminist agenda and helped helped people and more importantly people within the industry understand that it, it's it's okay you can make a, a female woman a, a movie about a, a woman as your lead action hero as the lead hero as the character that that not just little girls, but little boys and, and all of us can look up to. It's it's not, they don't have to be over-sexualized. They don't have to, um, you know, they don't have to, you don't have to placate to audiences. You can, you can have a character just as rich as a man would. You can have a female character just as rich as a man would be. And people will go along with it. If you, if you deliver quality, it's not, you know, we're not going to shun it just because... It's it's a woman at the heart of it, and I think that Wonder Woman, for that for those all those reasons I've discussed and many more, was definitely the standout film of the summer. And uh, you know, I, I as you all are, I'm sure I'm really looking forward to Wonder Woman too, and I'm hoping for the best for Justice League. So, but that's another season that we're getting into the fall, so we'll we'll get there. That's a good place to actually end our summer 2017 movie season wrap up or recap, whatever we end up calling this. Um, you can find links to all the episodes for of the Cricket Table Podcast for this, the movies that I've discussed here, including my appearances on Cinemaholics. That's all I have for now. You can rate and review Crooked Table Podcast on iTunes if you'd be so kind. We're also on Stitcher. You can find me, Robert Yanis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. Find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Stay tuned for a brand new episode in the coming week. Right now, the topic is still up in the air. Um, as I mentioned last week, I'm actually going to be traveling, so I'm going to still get an episode up, you know, every week, like I've like I've been uh, like I've been sticking to. Hopefully by the weekend, but I'm not exactly sure what movie I'm going to end up seeing or if I'm going to have something different to talk about. So there will be something <laughs> next week. Stay tuned for that. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.